Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today, two enormous interviews. First, CEO of Target, Brian Cornell, the morning of his company's fourth quarter results. We've delivered $55 billion of revenue through discretionary categories in 2022, but we have seen a consumer who's not spending the way they were during the pandemic. The state of the consumer and what the retailers' financials say about inflation and our economy's health. It's impacting costs, it's still impacting transportation, and we're still far away from a more normalized environment. And CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon, meeting his shareholders at the bank's Investors Day. When I look across the spectrum of work we've done to grow the firm, to improve the way we serve our clients, to strengthen our business, we've made a lot of progress. Those big interviews, plus Zoom's Enterprise Zoom, Meta's Bet on AI, and the maker of Marlboro is going digital. Move over, Jewel. You ever smoke? Like every day smoker? Yeah. Really? Well, like when I was 23 or 23, a stockbroker. <laughs> it's Tuesday, February 28th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Shares of Zoom because they are going higher this morning, up close to 7%, 6.5%, we'll call it right now. Earnings of $1.22 per share beat the estimate of $0.81. Cents. Revenue also beat. Now, executives uh, said the clients were looking carefully before agreeing to pay Zoom for services, and some organizations have decreased the number of seats for Zoom software as part of a broader expense pullback guidance for the full-year revenue short of estimates, but earning guidance was well above expectations and current quarter guidance also beaten. Big question, when you look at an earnings report like that, to me, is just whether the expectations had been lowered by so much. Not to suggest they sandbagged what they thought the quarter was, but I do think that that there's been a sort of lowering of expectations across the board. Well, the stock's been down pretty significantly over the last year and a half or so as people have come back to work. <laughs> you know what the high is? 125, 140? Yep. 550. 550? Oh, going back even further. Well, 550. The high for the pandemic high. Wow. So, yeah, it's up, it today. it's up to 78. I'm just <laughs> saying. Nothing. It's just yeah, it's life a, is it's relative. A commentary life is relative. Um, I mean, look at the chart. I mean, it's like a. That's a DCB, really. But it's okay. It's good. It's up six. Uh, you could put Peloton and mirror yeah. that yeah. right yeah. on top put, of it. Put a lot of them on there. But yeah, 550 to. But it's, hey, it's up 6%. Meta will create a new product group inside the company that's focused on generative AI. The CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, said that the new unit will combine several teams across Meta, organized under current chief product officer Chris Cox. Zuckerberg said the company is exploring uses for artificial intelligence and text in its WhatsApp and Messenger apps, as well as images and videos for apps like Instagram. And guys, um, got to wonder if this was a year or two ago, would he have changed the company name to AI uh, instead of Meta? Well, it, this it, is clearly it, what everybody's chasing. We're right making now. strides in tech land. It's generative AI instead of previously. I mean, there's a lot of degenerative uh, type stuff out there when you say coming out of. Uh, but generative is. I mean that's that's a that's a that's a positive. Um, You're gonna be friends with the bot. Is that what this is all? This is where all this is headed, you know. 
after Everyone's reading that thing. Everyone busy. gets a friend. Think about where we are right now and how weird that was. And think about how weird it could really get. I'm talking about that, that article where, where the bot said, do you love me? Do you, I know you're married. I know you, but you're married and you had a lousy la la Valentine's Day dinner with your wife and you want to leave her. That's what the bot That's where we are right times. now. Now that's degenerative AI. So at least he, we're going to go. Well, you know all it is mirroring reality. That's the problem. Maybe it's, your reality. No, I'm saying it's mirroring reality. All it is, is right, it's taking it's, language. It's read language, and it's mm. taking that language that it's read, and it's seeing that that is the kind of response that you would respond to a certain question with that response. And that's, if you're a neurotic weirdo, that's the way you'd respond? I mean, uh, The, the way that they're now telling people, the people who are doing the beta testing for it, they say yeah. you're not allowed to ask it how it feels. So that's like you, the new rules. You have to, you, by the way, to get to that answer, you had to actually continue to push it and push it and push it and push it and push it. Yeah, it's so. natural answer was and it not, snaps? That's not how it <laughs> that's not how it starts. And it finally snaps. Well, it's how it's how that's kinda cool if very it has human. If it can get an emotion about. like that, if it can, you know, be fed up would be a good one. But you know, I'm afraid I can't do that how or I can't Dave, open the pod you're stuck out in space infinite question, space forever. It's, that's it's, language too, but you don't just stuck to language and text, it's fine. <laughs> if the question is once it can actually do stuff. Robinhood Markets is saying that in a new filing, it received an investigative subpoena in December from the SEC related to listings of cryptocurrencies. The company is saying the subpoena was related to its crypto listing, custody of crypto and platform operations. Now, Robinhood received a similar subpoena request from California's attorney general uh, in saying that, and says that it is cooperating with that investigation. Here's what I don't well. get in this one. Yep. They, they got this at least two months ago. It was right. December. It's the last day of February right now. Why do you find out now? I don't know. And I don't wonder what, I mean, I think we, did, we knew about the California one, which I think has been around. Um, I don't know the answer. And I don't know what, what, if you think that's material, if it's not material. It's like, there's an SEC filing now, but it's two months later. And Marlboro maker Altria is in advanced talks to buy e-cigarette startup Enjoy uh, holdings for at least two and three quarter billion dollars and plans to divest its stake in Juul Labs. This is a Wall Street Journal report uh, that says this. and. Uh, it says a deal could be announced as soon as this week. Altria paid $12.8 billion for a 35% stake in Juul in 2018, just before Juul became uh, embroiled in lawsuits and disputes with federal regulators. Came close to filing for bankruptcy last year. Altria now values Juul at $714 uh, million, with an M, dollars. Enjoy uh, has obtained clearance from the FDA to sell its tobacco-flavored e-cigarettes in the U.S., a hurdle that has eluded uh, the two biggest brands, Juul and Views Alto, which is uh, owned by Reynolds American. You ever smoke? No. I mean, I've, I, have I ever? You never smoked? Literally no. had a cigarette? Yes. Honestly? But have I ever? Really? Oh, yeah, I smoked. Not, not a smoker. I smoked not when a I was much, young, much younger. Like every day smoker? Yeah. Really? Well, like when I was... 23 or 23, you know, stockbroker. <laughs> but, uh, and Marlboro Reds, where a lot of people liked Marlboro. Those and then a lot harsh, of people right? switched, a lot of people switched to uh, Marlboro Lights, obviously. But it, it were like $3 a pack. You know what it costs for a pack in New York City, Sorkin? Oh, it's so expensive with the taxes I hope, they've got on. I hope more, more than, than, whatever I know, your answer is, that's what, more. Than more. $15 Good. For, for a pack. Yeah. But do you watch, like, I mean, if you watch anything 10 years old, whether it's a movie or a series or anything, people still act like it's like, oh, dude, you know, they go outside, and they, oh, I got, I want to have a, and they smoke, you know, normal people, lawyers, all kinds of, it's not like that anymore. I see someone smoking now, it's like, I kind of wonder. What's going on? What you're thinking. It's like. Uh, not get the memo about how dangerous right. it is. Right. Or are you 
sort of like weak or something, or you can't really just finally do what you need to do. And then there's people that have the patch in. <laughs> you know, that's really people that love nicotine. But then it brings back the whole idea of a new delivery system for nicotine, which is a useless, you know, compound to put in your bloodstream in the first. It's well, a stimulant, I guess. Jewel got in trouble because they were marketing to teenagers and young kids. And, and the, it's a and, new delivery system. A new delivery system, and they were marketing to teenagers. That you don't need in and, your... And, yeah, and this Nobody is, needs it delivered into their system. No, and the argument that the makers of all these things would say is we're a, a, a way to get you off of, of the hard stuff, of right. the Marlboro Lights, Marlboro Reds. But the argument back is the flavored ones are, are, are excessively marketed to teenagers, and they're the ones who pick it up, and it's finding new markets. And you saw Crazy Woody on SNL, right? Yep. Dead. He's the bonkers, <laughs> certifiably out of his gourd. But uh, he's like, he, he tries to get to noon without uh, blowing a big bone. <laughs> tries to make it to noon, but has, uh, uh. has a lot uh, of issues. And a vegan, which would be, that'd be hard. If I'm going to, I want to be able to you know, enjoy some food. I don't want to be eating plants. <laughs> There's you a feed, lot of plant-based alternatives. You're preparing your Solomon snacks. interview too, too uh, tied up thinking about that to, to think about anything else, Andrew? What's the problem? No too problem. frivolous? Too, uh, no, okay. I, I, no right. problem. Did no comment? I got no comment. No comment. I got nothing. All right, I got you got nothing. Next on Squawk Pod, retailer Target had a bumpy 2022 thanks to record high inflation and supply chain issues. Is the Target magic back in 2023? CEO Brian Cornell joins us for an exclusive interview. We're on a multi-year journey to get back to pre-pandemic margin levels. Right now, mix is certainly impacting margins. We're selling more lower margin items like food and beverage and household essentials and less of apparel at home, but that's gonna moderate over time. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. This is Becky's mic. Straight up on Becky. Three, two, one. Up on Becky. Q. Target reporting better than expected results for the fourth quarter. The retailer posting earnings of $1.89 a share. The street was only looking for $1.40 a share. Revenue beat, too. It came in at $31.4 billion versus the $30.7 billion the street was expecting. You can see that stock up by about 3.4% right now. Joining us to talk more about it is Brian Cornell. He's Target's chairman and CEO. And Brian, thanks for being here today. Good to be here. All right, let's talk about this because you beat by a big, uh, big, big number on the fourth quarter. But for the guidance for the first quarter and the full year, it was a little below. But let's run through everything and kind of work out what's happening because I think you're a very important uh, tell of what's happening with the consumer. Sure. So what are you seeing? Well, let me try to unpack both the quarter and the full year, and then we can talk about guidance. Okay. You know, certainly we saw really solid results in the fourth quarter. It was our 23rd consecutive quarter of comp store sales increases, and it was driven by traffic. So we continue to see really strong traffic gains across our business. And if you look at the full year, and you talked about it earlier today, I mean, during the pandemic, we added almost $30 billion of top line growth. We had another $3 billion of growth in 2022. And it was driven once again by strong traffic increases. We grew unit share across all five of our key merchandising categories. So we continue to see a consumer who's shopping at Target. From a spending standpoint, they're leaning into food and beverage categories and household essentials and beauty. But I think one of the facts that may not be coming through in the report is while there has been some softness in discretionary categories, we've delivered $55 billion of revenue through discretionary categories in 2022. So they're not going to zero. 
but we have seen a consumer who's not spending the way they were during the pandemic. But if I look at discretionary spending going back to 2019, we added almost $14 billion of discretionary growth over the last three years. So those categories are still active. We're still making sure we make the right choices, but we're gonna manage inventory conservatively and lean into the spaces where we know consumers are spending today. And inventory has been a big issue over the last several quarters. Um, you've had to do a lot to clean things up. Right now, you're, you're dealing with inventory that's down 3% in total. That discretionary inventory is down even more. What is it, down 13 to 14%? Well, one of the last times we were together, yeah. we were talking about inventory. I go back to the middle of 2022, and we realized consumer spending habits had changed. The way they were spending during the pandemic, buying TVs, spending dollars on their home, they were starting to curtail that and spending a lot more on necessities. So we took a pretty bold action and said, we're gonna address that inventory. We're gonna get our inventory levels right. We finished the year exactly where we wanted to be. And overall inventory down 3%, but importantly, discretionary inventory is down 13%. So as we go into 2023, we feel great about the inventory levels, the fact that we're gonna be able to have the right new items in our assortment, but we'll lean into the categories where we're seeing the biggest growth which is right now all those frequency categories, the food and beverage you need, your household essentials, and beauty. And we'll manage cautiously the other part of our portfolio. Well, let's talk about the guidance because I think people are wondering, are you being excessively cautious with the guidance that you're giving? For the first quarter, you're now talking about numbers of $1.50 to $1.90. The street was all the way up at $2.14. For the full year, adjusted EPS of $7.75 to $8.75, but the street was already at $9.23. Is that because so much of the strength is in lower margin businesses? Well, I think we're being appropriate with our guidance in this environment. We know inflation is still high. It's been very stubborn. It's still at a very high level. We know interest rates are rising, and we're going to watch the consumer really carefully. But I think in an uncertain environment, we're taking the right steps to plan appropriately and taking the right approach to managing inventory and being cautious, and we'll react accordingly. Some of the things we're seeing, though, Becky, beyond just buying household essentials, we also recognize consumers today, they're looking for newness. So the actions we took with our inventory allows us to make sure we've got new relevant inventory in our system at all times and we can bring that affordable joy that target is so known for to our guests even in this kind of environment so you'll see a lot of new items in apparel and home in seasonal categories and we'll complement our strength right now in frequency and continue to make sure we're driving traffic by having the right items at the right price every time you shop. What indiscretionary is doing well? If electronics has come back, what, what categories in discretionary yeah. are really leading? Well, I'll tell you, as we start the year, I've seen a great reaction to some more spring apparel, you know, bright new colors, guests are attracted to it. Valentine's Day was a big event and guests continue to enjoy these seasonal moments. So we've got to make sure we've got the right inventory in place and we recognize that, yes, consumers are on a budget right now, they're buying the necessities first, but they're still shopping for themselves. So having great items, great newness at the right price is something we'll continue to make sure we deliver throughout the year. One of the questions that we were talking about downstairs, Joe and Andrew and I, just uh, what happens if you're stealing market share? Who are you stealing it from? Because all of the big box retailers have talked about higher uh, revenue numbers coming in. Well, it's the unique part of our multi-category portfolio. So think about we've got about 20% of our business in apparel, about 20% in home, about 20% in toys and electronics and sporting goods, and then 20% in beauty and essentials and 20% in food. So 
over the last three years, we've taken billions of dollars of market share across each one of those major uh, categories. So because of our model, we're driving traffic. And I think the most important indicator of the health of our business is the fact that now, not only did we grow comps for 23 straight quarters, it's been driven by traffic for 23 straight quarters. So more footsteps into our stores, more visits to our site, guests are utilizing drive up and same day services. That's now 10% of our total business. So it gives us a chance to make sure we're taking share and meeting the needs of our guests across all of those categories. So are you taking toy market share from Toys R Us, which doesn't exist anymore, Bed Bath & Beyond is where maybe you're taking some of your home? Those have certainly been examples of where we took significant share. So you know, we're one of the biggest toy retailers in America. We're a big home player. So as changes take place in the industry, we'll lean in and make sure we're that alternative and we're picking up that traffic and adding to the basket when someone says, all right, Target is a great place to shop for home. They have all the toys I'm looking for. So that's the unique part of our multi-category portfolio is we can flex into trends, but we're a destination where you can get everything you need in one location. I spoke with an analyst yesterday who said one of the things that they're watching is, is margins at this point. No longer a story about inventories, that that's in control, but looking at margins. Um, margins, I, I think EBIT margins right now are around 3.3% is what I was told. Um, that's down from 8% during COVID and, and maybe 6%-ish for normal times. So what, what's the story with the margins? Is that because it's lower margin things like food and beverage, or is it because you have to offer discounts like you didn't have to offer yeah. at all during COVID? Well, during COVID, there were no discounts. Yeah. There was, I mean, everyone was selling exactly what they had on the floor. So I think we're on a multi-year journey to get back to pre-pandemic margin levels. Right now, mix is certainly impacting margins. We're selling more lower margin items, like food and beverage and household essentials, and less of apparel at home. But that's gonna moderate over time. So we're going to step forward in 2023, improve our op income by at least $1 billion. We'll see EPS improve by at least $1.75. And that's going to continue to improve as we go into 2024 hopefully a more normalized environment as we move through this year. What do you see just in terms of labor issues? Are you able to hire? How much do you have to pay people? Well, you know that going all the way back to 2017, we took an industry-leading position with starting minimum wage. We said we were going to get to $15. Sitting here today, depending on the market, our minimum starting wage is somewhere between $15 and as high as $24. So that's allowed us to attract and retain team members across our system. But we've made big investments in wages and benefits in our debt-free educational assistance program. And that's really allowed us to retain our team and give them an opportunity to build a rewarding career at Target. How much does that impact margins? And I, again, just back to the idea, if you're at 3.3% margins at this point, how do you get back to the 6% yeah. normal? Well, again, we've been making those investments over time. That is something that we're committed to. And we'll continue to make sure we're investing in our team. Sitting here today, when I think about adding over $30 billion of growth, while there's lots of factors, it's all come down to the work our teams have done to take care of our guests each and every day. So we'll continue to make sure we're investing in our team, and I know they're gonna provide the return on that investment. What do you do if you're looking at ways to make things more efficient? What's your first line of attack? How do you do that? Well, we're gonna talk about that later today. I mean, as we think about the scale we've generated over the last few years, now it's time to step back and say, all right, how do we find greater efficiencies and find simpler ways to operate the company? So we'll spend a lot of time today talking about, all right, how do we add simplicity and take away some of the complexity so 
Our teams have an easier role to play at Target, and we continue to provide great service for our guests. Like what? What's an example? Well, think about drive up, and I know you've experienced it. Yeah. You know, we've seen a tremendous acceleration in our drive up business. Years ago, we started with folding tables in the back room and clipboards as we were taking those orders. You know, now we put process in place, we've added technology on part of it, we pick batches of orders, we're remodeling stores, and when we do that, we're building mini fulfillment hubs in the front of our store. And in some cases, we have canopies out in the parking lot. So it's really clear we're in that drive-up business. But for our teams, they go to the front of the store, they find that order when you pull in the parking lot, and they walk through a dedicated door right to your car. Now, those lanes in our parking lot, well, they're numbered. So I know Becky Quick is in lane number three. Our team member can find you immediately and put that order in your trunk. And on the inspiration side, now, if you want a couple of your favorite Starbucks coffee, we'll also bring that out to the parking lot. So there's ways for efficiency, but also to put that smile on your face to say, only a target. Can I have someone within three minutes bring my order, put it in my trunk while my kids are still in the back seat, and they're gonna bring me my favorite Starbucks product. Right, that's compelling. Um, Brian, let me ask you really quickly some macro pictures. Um, what's the inflationary picture look like to you? Not just in terms of hiring, but what shipping, what do you have to pay in excess? What's, what do you think the numbers yeah. is going to be this year? Well, right now, I think it's one of the uncertain factors that we're looking at. I mean, inflation's been very stubborn. Uh, sitting here today, it's down from the highest rates, but you know, inflation is still a factor in the business. It's still impacting consumer and their spending. So we've got to watch that really carefully. But it's impacting costs. It's still impacting transportation. And we're still far away from a more normalized environment. And let me just ask you broadly, theft, shrinkage is a, is a problem for the retail industry at large. You know, the, 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 I think it was a Walgreens across the street that is now shut down because you can't keep anything in stock. People walk in and steal it, rip it off. How big of a problem is that for Target? Well, for the industry, I think NRF has talked about the fact that it's close to a $100 billion issue. Mm -hmm. You know, as I think about it, it's less about the financials. It's much more about safety. The safety of the guests who are shopping in our stores, the safety of our team. So we're very active at the national level, at the state and local level, to make sure steps are being taken to curtail these issues. But there's a financial component to that. But what I worry about most is the safety of our team and our guests, and that's where, where we focus. And what is the financial component? Well, we've talked about it in the past. I mean, it's, a, it's material for us. It's yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars, and we've got to manage that carefully. That's also something we factored into our guidance as we sit here today. Okay. Brian, I want to thank you very much for being with Always us today. Always good to be here. Cheese will be next. Coming up, Goldman Sachs CEO meets the Wall Street community in the company's annual investor day. He'll join Andrew Ross Sorkin for a candid conversation. Of course, we haven't executed perfectly on everything, but when I look across the spectrum of work we've done to grow the firm, to improve the way we serve our clients, to strengthen our business, we've made a lot of progress. Squawk Pod will be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box uh, here on CNBC. Live from the uh, NASDAQ market site in Times Square where snow's gone already. I'm Joe Kern along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? For now. To love? For now. Uh, U.S. equity few. It was a little dicey at 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock in the morning. It was still it was, snowing yeah. and uh, the roads weren't great. 
But here we are. Andrew. Okay. Uh, Joe, we've got a big interview. Goldman Sachs kicking off its second ever Investor Day this morning and joining us right here at the bank's headquarters in downtown Manhattan. First right here on CNBC is Goldman Sachs' chairman and CEO, David Solomon. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. It's, it's, um, it's great to have you here in the building. I think this is the second time we've second had you here in the building in the last, in the last year. Uh, big so day. Yeah. Uh, help us uh, understand what you're going to be talking about today. There's been a lot of noise, dare I say. I think almost every other day there's now a new headline about Goldman Sachs, about you, about what the firm is, what it isn't. Uh, some, some of the criti- criticism fair, probably some unfair. What, what do you think the investor community and maybe the public misunderstands about Goldman? Well, um, first of all, I'm, I'm excited to have you here today, and I'm excited to have our investor day today. This is only, as you highlighted, Andrew, the second time in over 150 years we've brought investors into the building to give them an update on our business and our progress. And I think you know, back three years ago when we had our first investor day, we laid out a clear strategic plan for the firm. We laid out a plan to invest in our core businesses. We pointed to four areas that we thought were interesting opportunities for the firm to grow. Asset management, wealth management, transaction banking, and also consumer banking. We said we'd run the firm more efficiently, and we put out some targets and metrics to track our performance over time. And today, we're updating investors on our progress. And candidly, we've made, we've made a lot of progress over the last three years, and I'm excited to have a number of my colleagues, Dan Dees, who's one of the three people runs our big global bankings and mark, banking and markets franchise. We'll talk about the progress we've made in that business, the strengthening of that business, the market share gains in that right. business. We'll talk about the asset management platform. And we'll also update people on our journey around the consumer business, which has obviously gotten a lot of attention. But I feel good about our progress. I've spent a lot of time with investors over the last few months. And I know our investors are excited to be here and get a little bit more information as they track our journey. When people think about Goldman, and they think about the valuation of Goldman and the banking space, I think there's still a lot of questions broadly about what it is that a firm like Goldman needs to do to transform itself. Consumer was one of those pieces that people thought might transform the valuation and the story in a different way that hasn't happened. How do you shift around that? Well, when we laid out our plan three years ago, we talked about a number of avenues for growth and opportunity. And I think it's absolutely fair that our execution around the consumer platforms hasn't been to the standard we'd like it to be. There's still opportunity for us. We have some interesting platforms where we've built good technology and have good partners, and we're working to improve the performance of those platforms. But the real story of opportunity for growth for us in the coming years is around asset management and wealth management. And if you look at the work we've done over the last few years to put that platform together, we're running the fifth largest active asset manager in the world. We set a management fee target a few years ago when we had about $5.5 billion of management fees for $10 billion of management fees in 2024. We finished last year at $8.8 billion. We're clearly on track to meet that target. We continue to meet our fundraising targets. We started with a fundraising target and alternatives of $150 billion. We blew past that ahead of schedule. We're at $180 billion, headed to $225 billion of fundraising. Right. So there's real opportunity across the firm for us to continue to make the firm more durable. And I'd also point to, Andrew, and this is one of the reasons why I think you know, our stock on a relative basis has performed reasonably well over the last few years, is that we've grown the earnings of the firm materially. So our EPS in 2022 was 40% more than our EPS right. was before our last right. investor day. So we're making, we're making progress, but we've got more terms, work to do. If we were to look at a pie chart five years from now, in terms of the asset management piece of the business, which is the piece that the market, at least today, would value at a higher, you know, at a higher multiple than the banking and trading piece, it would look like what? 
I think it would look it would look larger because that's going to continue to grow. There, there, there are a couple of aspects of that business. Obviously, we're adding assets and we're partnering with more institutions, et cetera. We're moving to an asset light model. Right. We had always used our balance sheet very extensively, and part of the strategy has been to significantly reduce our balance sheet, and we're about halfway through that journey. Right. But it, it will be a bigger piece of the business. I think that you'll see private banking revenue, which has grown meaningfully over the last few years, continue to grow. And we've also set the firm up so there's an ability to see and track more clearly our progress in those businesses. Now, I don't want to take away, Goldman Sachs is the leader in investment banking and markets. Global banking and markets is a premier franchise. We have extraordinary people. They work hard every day to serve our clients. And the relative performance in that business has been fantastic. And so that's always going to be a big part of Goldman Sachs. We're going to continue to grow the businesses that we think are important to serve our clients. We've got an interesting ethos around one Goldman Sachs, and I think it's, I think it's working. Okay, let, me, let me read you a, a critique, though. Sure. Did you read the Financial Times this morning? Uh, I did not read the Financial okay. Times. Okay. This, this is the editorial board op-ed. I'm sorry, yesterday. You okay. read this yesterday. You know what I'm about to say probably then. Uh, this is the FT. The bank whose dominance is the Goldman Sachs was once so assured that it gained notoriety as the vampire squid is now more of a damp squid, they write. Solomon did not err in his judgment that Goldman needed to diversify. The question is the wisdom of the mix he chose and its bungled implementation. I wonder, so I'm curious I, what you think of that and, and, and also if there's a lesson in all of this. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't like that, but at the right. same point, that's, I would say that's, that's an opinion from one source. I look to our clients. And I listen to our clients. Right. And the feedback from our clients about the way, the way we serve them continues to be excellent. Our market shares across our core business continue to be excellent, and they've actually grown. In our banking and markets business, we've increased our market shares by 350 basis points, our wallet share, over the last few years. Of course, we haven't executed perfectly on everything. But when I look across the spectrum of work we've done to grow the firm, to improve the way we serve our clients, to strengthen our business, we've made a lot of progress. And in the places, Andrew, where we've fallen short, we will, we will reflect, right. we will learn, we will adapt, because that's what good businesses do. Okay, and that's, and that's what we're I doing. I don't want to belabor the point, but let's just talk about that. Because I think there are people who say, well, was there a lesson learned about the consumer piece? If you go back, look, the consumer piece started uh, under, under Lloyd Blankfein, right? Do you look back and say, that, that was where the mistake was made? Do you say to yourself, okay, I took that and I had, I, there was a fork in the road. I could have said, we're, we're stopping that. We're not doing that. Or I could have doubled down, which I think is what you'd argue probably did at that moment. When you look back at that, you say to yourself, okay, the, there was a lesson in that and it is. I, I, I think the important thing as businesses experiment and try new things. And again, right. you know, in the proportion of Goldman Sachs, you know, I, I want it kept yep. in perspective. You know, Goldman Sachs, you know, we're in 10.2% on its equity last year, made $11.3 billion after tax. This was something that was an emerging opportunity for us. We did not execute well on it. There are parts of it that we executed very well on. We built a deposit platform that works very well. It's attractive. It's good for consumers. We've built a big deposit base, which is hugely strategic for us. So there are right. parts of the strategy that we executed well on. There are parts that we didn't. I think the important thing that you do is you look at what you've done, you learn, you adapt, you correct, you move forward. And so I think, and I said this to you the last time you asked me these questions when I was on TV a month ago, I said to you, you know, Andrew, I think we tried to do too much too quickly. And as a result, our execution in some areas of this right. wasn't good. And so what do you do? You correct that.
And so, you know, that's, that's what businesses do. There isn't, there isn't a business that, that kind of goes through and doesn't have successes, but also some stumbles. Uh, one related question on the consumer side, which is you are staying in the credit card business. You have this partnership with Apple. You have another partnership with General Motors. It was a, star, a story uh, that came out yesterday in CNBC.com that suggested that the, the Apple deal, the terms of that deal were, quote, one-sided. Uh, that when folks internally actually saw the terms of that deal, they said, this, this doesn't make sense. My question is, do those terms still make sense? And is the deal with GM the same? You know, we, we have partnerships. These are great companies. We have long-dated partnerships. I think one of the things that's not well understood is we're partners. When you're partners, you both benefit right. and you both, you both have friction from deals. And so one of the things we work with our partners on is making the partnership stronger so that we can serve our customers better. And we're very focused on that with both Apple and GM. And there's lots of opportunity in that for Goldman Sachs and for Apple and for General Motors. Um, as I was looking through the deck this morning that you're going to be presenting later, uh, ESG is uh, on a couple of the pages uh, in, in big, bold letters. I, I want to read you, though. There's obviously a huge debate going on in this country. It's almost a political debate. But this is Vanguard's uh, CEO just wrote this recently, said we cannot state that ESG, environmental, social and governance investing, is better performance wise than broad index investing. Our research indicates that ESG investing does not have any advantage over broad based investing. What do you think of that as somebody who I think has advocated uh, for the ideas around ESG? Well, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate for climate transition, but it's just that. It's a transition that's going to go on over a long period of time. I think one of the things we do as an asset manager is we meet the needs of capital allocators. And capital allocators are interested in allocating right. some capital, not all of their capital, some capital, towards technologies, towards opportunities that are driving the transition, that are right. making the world more sustainable you know, for all of us. And so I think it's important for us as an asset manager to participate in that. But what, what do you make of the political blowback? And how has that impacted your thinking about all of this? I, I, the, the political blowback really hasn't affected my thinking that meaningfully. I've always been of the belief that it's important for us to try to be constructive and allocating risk capital and driving risk capital right. toward technologies that can accelerate the transition. But it's a transition. It's going to take decades. Right. Goldman Sachs is still going to be involved with traditional energy companies. We're helping traditional right. energy companies think about have how you had Have you had states that you've done business for uh, say, hey, you know what? You guys have taken out, taken either positions on these things. You've been active, articulating a lot of the things around ESG. We don't want to be in business with that. I mean, you've you've seen the blowback again. I've, I've the, seen the Black Rocks I've and seen Larry the, Finks of the world. That's why I was curious. I've seen what the, kind of conversation. I've seen the I've seen the noise and the blowback in other places. I think that we continue to serve our clients broadly, and as a result, we've not been specifically you know raised in, in one of right. those dialogues. You know, I've said publicly, it's a transition. We finance fossil fuel companies, and we also you know, finance an enormous amount of capital into exciting technologies that can accelerate the transition. We need secure energy. We need secure energy. And I think one of the things we've learned over the course of the last 12 months is our energy supply chains, the security of those supply chains, the availability at attractive prices for end users is, is very, very important for us. Uh, we've talked about China a lot over the years. It feels like uh, the tensions have only gotten worse uh, over the years that we've, we've had those conversations. And I'm curious how you think the bank plans to approach the issue of China, doing business in China, working with, with clients in China and around China, working with investors, thinking about investing in China. How has your thinking changed, if at all? Well, I, I think it's hard to operate in this environment and not have your thinking shift a little bit, given 
the fact that we're in a very, very tough place in the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and China. And my own view is I think it's probably going to get tougher over the next couple of years before it, before it gets better. We operate, though, in service of our clients, and they can be right. global clients that are doing business in China. They can sometimes be clients on the ground. You know, I think the lens is the lens, local clients. I think the lens has shifted a little bit, um, given the environment. But we we will serve our clients as they need to be served. If somehow from from our government, from a legislative process, there are changes in capital flow rules, et cetera, we'll obviously adapt to them. Um, but certainly our view is it's a more cautious time in terms of our own investment in our franchise. So the risk there, premium has very, gone up. The risk premium has gone up. But we've, you know, we've got a reasonable footprint in Hong Kong, you know, a smaller footprint on the mainland. And it's there to serve our clients. Right. And we're going to continue to serve our clients because, candidly, they need more advice at this point right. in time, given the complexity of the situation. Um, you talk a lot about technology in the deck and what uh, this firm can be almost as a, a technology. I don't know if you think of yourself as a fintech player at all. We talk a lot about ChatGPT uh, on the show. I'm curious where you think AI really plays out on this. And have you been playing with ChatGPT even itself in the, in the context of finance? I, I, I have been playing with it, you know, personally, just to understand it. But, um, you know, we're, we're certainly spending time thinking about it. I think that, that, that the AI technologies have the potential to be very, very transformative. Uh, you know, the potential right. uh, to be very, very transformative in the same way that the Internet was very, very transformative. How far out, though, are we in terms of what it could do? I don't I'm not you know, I'm not a technologist that can really tell you how far out are we. My guess is, is that the acceleration of the technologies and the impact they can have in work processes, workflows and some of the things that we do in a whole range of businesses in some ways will come quicker than people believe. And in other ways, the real disruption will be longer dated. Um, But we're spending time thinking about it. There are very simple things around workflow and processes that you certainly can lever. Um, but it's exciting technology, and I think it's, it's something that, you know, all businesses, as I move around and talk to our clients, our clients are thinking about how does this affect my business? How can it affect the way I have certain processes that, that you know, inform my business? it affects labor? And I ask because the technology space has just gone through a, a big round of layoffs. Uh, you went through some layoffs of your own. Do you think long term this changes that dynamic? I, I would step, you know, way, way up at a very high level, Andrew, and just say if you and I... We're, we're sitting interviewing each other 150 years ago, we'd be talking on how industrialization was going to affect labor. Right. Um, you know, the world changes, technology changes, we adapt as a society, we find new ways and new skill sets where people can thrive and there's opportunity. You know, I'm a, I'm a bull on the long-term case for that, regardless of the technologies right. that, that come. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, this technology is going to meaningfully impact you know, labor and opportunity. I don't, I'm, that's not the way I look at the world. Um, wanted to ask you about buybacks. Again, another uh, issue that you raised uh, in, in the deck today. Um, 2.25 billion so we far. We filed our 10K uh, uh, last Thursday and it highlighted that as of last Thursday, we bought back two and a quarter billion dollars in the quarter. Um, you probably saw Warren Buffett over the weekend said that uh, folks are economic illiterates if they're against the world of buybacks. Uh, you've authorized up to $30 billion. When you think to yourself, if I could spend $2.25 billion on my stock, you have to believe that your stock is therefore undervalued, versus using that money in some other way. How do you think through that? Well, we have a, we have a capital allocation policy right. that's very, very clear. And when we discuss it with our board and we're actively engaged with our board on capital allocation, we talk first and foremost, are there opportunities in our business to deploy capital to serve our clients and grow our business? Right. And that is our first order you know, of business, is where are the opportunities to serve our clients? 
The second order of business then is if, you know, once, once we've met those demands, et cetera, we generate a lot of capital as a business, right. the capital belongs to the shareholders, we return it. So we have a dynamic capital management process. If you look at our buyback activity last year, you saw that it ranged from $500 million um, in some quarters to this past right. quarter, it was two and a quarter billion. If you could buy anything in the world, what would you buy? If I could buy anything? Yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'd like a new car. For the firm. I, you know, look, Andrew, I, um, as, as we look ahead at the moment, we're focused on the execution of our businesses. At the moment, we've laid out in the Investor Day deck, I know right. you've seen it, We've laid out very clearly that in our global banking and markets business, we are focused on continuing to grow our market shares and increase our financing activity for our clients. Right. In asset and wealth management, we're driving management fees. We have a big management fee target. We're on track to right. meet it, and we're going to continue to grow our management fees. And we're focused on bringing platform solutions right. to profitability. That's where our focus is. Final question, and it's what all your clients are probably asking you, which is where is this economy headed? There's, there's, the, there's the Goldman analyst view, but what is the David Solomon family view? Well, I, I, I like to say that I sit around with my daughters talking about the macro economy, but they have other things that they'd rather talk about when we're together. So I don't, I don't know what the family view is. Um, but I would, what I would say, as I'm talking to CEOs, Andrew, there's been a shift over the last six months. I think there was a lot of pessimism around the chance that we could get through this cycle without a real recession, given how quickly we were changing economic conditions. We've now been in a period of nine months where we've had a real tightening of economic conditions. You know, obviously the impact of that will lag. We've taken inflation from double digits, you know, down, you know, more to five, six. I think the general consensus is inflation is going to be stickier. When I talk to CEOs, stickier and harder to move, you know, from where it is now, you know, down to 3%, let's say, let alone 2%. Right. And in the context of that, you know, higher rates, longer, sluggish growth, stickier, but a better chance that we can muddle through with a softer landing. And so I think there's a little more optimism because people's businesses have been performing better. The consumer has been right. more resilient. Um, service businesses in particular have been doing very well. So I, you know, I think we're in a place where there's a little bit more optimism about muddling through, but I think inflation is going to be sticky and hard. And you know, I think anyone running a business has to be prepared for kind of a bumpy 12 to 18 to right. 24 months. David Solomon, thank you very much. Absolutely. Today. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. It. Appreciate Thanks. it, Andrew. Thanks for being here. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? For now. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And the best parts of that three-hour show, the funniest goofs, and the biggest news-making interviews. We've had a big show, guys. Becky and Joe. A lot of good stuff today. All that good stuff is available here on Squawk Pod for free wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.